Oh, you know, when it comes to politics, I know a lot of us watch different things. Some of us watch Fox, some of us watch CNN, some of us watch a variety of things. Uh, for Christy, I asked her, you know, what she does, and she said, well, she reads this thing that comes out via email called the pour over, and in about five minutes gets the highlights of the news, so she doesn't have to be immersed in it, and so she thinks it's kind of entertaining, written very well, maybe you'll try that. For me, I kind of watch a little bit of everything, but what I get the most out of are podcasts. I listen to a podcast from the president of Southern Theological Seminary, Al Mohler, and I don't necessarily always agree with what he says, but I really appreciate the theological and cultural analysis that he does with regards to the news. And probably what I enjoy more than anything else is just listening to Ben Shapiro. He's a, he's a Harvard-educated lawyer who is a practicing Jew, and his analysis is really good. And Gina, she doesn't like to listen to the news so much because it makes her mad. I like to listen to the news because it makes me mad, because when you get angry, you burn more calories. Um, so uh, the reason I bring this up is not to tell you what you ought to read or what you ought to watch or what you ought to listen to. Uh, that's not the point. The point is, if I were to ask you, are you interested in politics, I want you to know I am. I follow politics. I'm interested. I get concerned about threats to free speech. I am concerned about our nation. I love this country. Okay, so I follow politics. I'm interested in this. So now you know where I stand. Let me just ask you, so it's safe. How many of you are interested in politics? I'm not asking you what position you take, Democrat or Republican or Independent. How many of you are just, you're interested in politics? You follow what, what's going on in our country. That's most of us, okay? So I just want you to know, I'm on your side, okay? And in fact, we didn't do a responsive reading, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to say, on the count of three, Ernest is on my side. Can you do that out loud? Okay. One, two, three. Ernest is on my side. Okay, we're going to say that a lot. Uh, no, really, we're going to say that a lot in this message. Um, because here, here's why. And, and this may, I don't mean this to hurt anybody or offend anybody. I, I don't intentionally want to ever offend anybody. If I offend, that's my problem. If it's the gospel that offends, well, then that's, you know, your problem. And frankly, this is one of these messages that's sort of convicting to me, and I had to wrestle with this quite a bit. I like politics. A lot of here are into politics. Okay? We're on the same page. But here's my question, or at least a suggestion. Maybe, maybe as followers of Jesus Christ, we care too much about politics. Maybe, as followers of Jesus, we care way too much about something we really shouldn't care all that much about. Where in the world did we get the idea, because it's not from the New Testament, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to weigh in on every political issue with regard to the nation in which we live? It's not in the Bible. I want you to think with me for just a second. Just, just imagine that you're a missionary and you've been stationed in Kenya or Tanzania or Malawi, uh, would you, as a missionary from another country, there as a foreigner or an alien, would you, would you weigh in on all the politics of that nation or that uh, local region? Now, I don't know that you can answer that question with absolute certainty because you've never been a missionary, but 
I asked David Morris, who, if you don't know, he's been around here for about a year. He is one of our missionaries. He did serve on the continent of Africa for over a quarter of a century in Kenya and Tanzania and Malawi. And and he said, as a missionary, you don't weigh in on the politics of the region. You know why? Because that's not why you're there. You weigh in on all the politics, it will undermine the gospel that you're trying to communicate. In fact, David basically essentially, and, and I asked him after the service, first service, he watched it. I said, am I leveraging your name in a wrong way? He said, no, 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 you're, you're communicating accurately. Here, here's the thing. If he was, as a missionary, to say something that was out overtly political as a missionary on the field, the International Mission Board, which is the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we're a part, would basically call him on the carpet and say that you have forgotten yourself. You have forgotten why you are where you are. You're an ambassador of Christ that's supposed to be advancing the good news of Jesus. You have forgotten that this is not really your country, that you're an alien, you're a stranger, that you belong to a country from above upon which you're waiting. Now, I I bring this up to say, listen, do, do you not recognize, do I not recognize that we are people who are on mission for Jesus? I don't always know the implications of this. I just know that we make mistakes when we forget who we are. And when we forget why God has placed us where he's placed us. I get this from time to time. And, and you all know, I, will, I, I talk about whatever is in the Bible. If it's about, you know, if it has to do with pro-life, if it, I'm going to go there. If the scripture teaches something that maybe is not popular, I'll, I'll say something about it, okay? Like this morning. I know that some people are not necessarily going to, to resonate with what I'm saying. I'm just trying to communicate as best I can that when it comes to Jesus, Jesus did not insert Jesus into politics. In fact, uh, quite frequently, Jesus had lots of opportunity to talk about the hot topic political issues of the day. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus lived at a time where hot political topics were on everybody's mind all of the time. One of the major concerns at the time was, what in the world are we going to do? What is the right response to the Roman Empire and their occupation of our territory? How are we going to respond in the the right way to the unjust and often abusive power of Rome? Jesus had enemies at the time, and it wasn't just Rome. It happened to be the religious leaders who wanted to throw Jesus under the bus. They felt like Jesus was a threat to their popularity and leadership. So the religious leaders were constantly looking for ways to undermine Jesus' popularity with the the people. And one of the ways they would try to undermine Jesus' popularity with the people was trying to draw Jesus into political discussions on hot topics. You see, uh, polarization over political issues is certainly not anything new. But when you read through the Bible, when you read through the New Testament, you're going to see consistently... That whenever people brought questions to Jesus about secular fallen kingdoms of this world, Jesus rather quickly and beautifully turned things around. He changed their questions to his own questions that didn't concern secular politics, but concerned really the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he was sent to advance, uh, the kingdom that his father 
had sent him to advance the kingdom over which he would rule every square inch of the territory. One of the things that we see in the scripture, just an example of this, is on one occasion some religious leaders pretty much pulled Jesus aside and they asked him a question concerning taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome, the occupying power, which obviously is going to use this money for military oppression of we, the Palestinian Jews. What should we do? Should we pay taxes or not? Now, I want to be honest with you. They might have been trying to throw Jesus under the bus or trick him, but that's a pretty good question. How many of y'all have seen Red Dawn? Does that kind of ring a bell? You remember, you know, Patrick Swayze, when he wasn't dancing, he was shooting Russians, okay, uh, or the Cubans or whatever the case was. Uh, and then they remade it, and I, I just kind of think, you know, look, if we got invaded by, what is the, the latest, North Korea, or the Russians, or the Cubans, or whatever the case is, I would want to know, as a member of the United States of America, who's now occupied by this foreign abusive power, do I really need to pay taxes to these people who are going to use this money for my continued oppression? That's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't directly answer it. Rather than step into the spotlight so as to inform people of how they need to answer this secular question, he kind of takes a, a bit of a step back and changes the subject. Takes a little coin and he holds it up and talks about it. Let's go ahead and read this together. Out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, you please stand for the reading of Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 21. The uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, have asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? And Jesus responds, show me the coin for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. God bless reading his word. You may be seated. You see how Jesus uh, ingeniously replaces the political question with a kingdom question of his own, he's essentially saying, okay, are we really going to bicker over how much of this idolatrous metal we're going to cling to? It's got Caesar's face on it. Give it to Caesar. Let's preoccupy ourselves with this greater question. How can we give to God that which bears his image? That is the entirety of our lives. In a very succinct and strong manner, Jesus communicates, I've got bigger fish to fry. We're, we're going we're gonna to move on with that because my primary concern is not how can we possibly improve on uh, the fallen secular kingdoms of the world. Look, I want to talk about the kingdom of God. And so he does. Now, I know some people say, well, that just seems like a little, I don't know, maybe cowardly or evasive. But it's really important for you to recognize that as you read through the New Testament, Jesus has plenty of opportunities to press with regards to clarifying political views. He has plenty of opportunities actually to press forward and seize political power. In fact, on occasion, the people wanted to make Jesus their king. It happened to be people who misunderstood Jesus. There were a lot of people who were thinking Jesus is going to be the Messiah in terms of a king who rules over us on the throne of David in some political capacity over the nation of Israel. And so that was their agenda for Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus, and Jesus would not allow people who did not understand him to make him to be who it was that he was not. 
There's an occasion when Jesus has fed the multitudes. This is a wonderful miracle. After the miracle is over, here's what we read from the Bible. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Wisely, Jesus declined the offer toward secular political influence and power. Jesus has actually done this earlier in his ministry. You may remember the story. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations that, that the devil gives to Jesus is, I'll give you all the authority and all the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world. Wisely, Jesus rejected that offer for supreme political power. And he rejected it, seeing this is, in fact, a temptation of the devil to grasp for, pol- for political influence. Now, this is interesting, because just imagine if Jesus had taken up Satan on the offer, or the people on the offer. What if he had become the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world? Just imagine all the practical good that Jesus could have done. Just imagine he could have ended all the suffering, thrown the Romans out. There would be peace around the world, right? Practical, pragmatic considerations aside, Jesus saw that any desire to acquire political power was, in fact, a temptation of the devil and was not in keeping with the Father's agenda. Now, there are a lot of questions that that are raised by all of this. Now, again, let me just let me just ask you: Who's on your side? Ernest is on my side. Thank you. Yes, I'm with you. I'm struggling with this because you know when I, uh, you know, I've got a passion for politics. I explained this, and, and like many of you, you see something on Twitter or Facebook, and you just want to go, <clears throat> get, you know, my thumbs going to overdrive. You know, I'm like, how could you? How could you think that? And I resist the temptation because it's a temptation. No. So here's, here's what I want to talk about today. Uh, basically, there's lots of questions. I'm going to mention seven questions that I think Jesus raises here as we're thinking about the answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And I don't know that we're going to hit the bullseye, but my hope is as you struggle with the questions that I struggle with that are appropriate in light of the passage and in light of Jesus' attitude and disposition, my, my hope is we'll at least hit the target as we struggle with these questions that arise from give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And the first question I think that is raised in my mind is this. If Jesus viewed the desire to acquire political power to be a temptation of the devil, why do so many Christians fight to acquire as much of this political power as they can? Or, put it a little bit differently, why is it that followers of Jesus Christ will fight each other and divide over who gets to sit in a secular government office and who doesn't. Does that seem to fit? Now, the answer that people will typically give is is along the lines of pragmatic concerns. Well, just imagine if we had a Christian in office. Just imagine the the good that, that could be done. And again, I'm glad to have Christians in office. I'm glad that we have a Christian mayor of Georgetown. I think that's fantastic. I'm glad that we had Mike Pence, a legit, born-again, evangelical Christian in the White House. I'm also glad that we had, for a long time, Jimmy Carter, born-again Christian. I'm all for born-again believers serving in office. But here's the 
response that people typically give. Well, why are we so passionate about political influence as the body of Christ? Well, it's just all the practical things that we can do. Okay, I get it. But as we just saw, those pragmatic concerns did not keep Jesus from seeing the desire to acquire political power as, in fact, a temptation of the enemy. And that practical response that Christians typically give does not take into account of how much good Christians do not do because they're spending so much time telling the government what the government needs to do and then telling other people how they need to tell other people about how they need to tell the government what the government needs to do. A preoccupation with politics can, and it often does, compromise our primary occupation as Christians who are called to advance the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis captures this really well. There's a book I'd recommend to people. It's called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, you ought to read it. It's very thoughtful. It involves Screwtape, who's a senior devil, who talks to this understudy, Wormwood, about how to get Christians off track and make them basically ineffective for Jesus. There's this section where Screwtape is telling Wormwood, here's what you need to do to the Christian you've been given charge of. Let him begin by treating patriotism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Democratic, Republican, doesn't matter. When we submit to the enemy's temptation toward partisanship and politics and party loyalties and provincialism and nationalism and all the rest, we have gone a long way down the road toward being essentially all in and thus ineffective with regards to the true calling that God has given us as ambassadors for Christ. The primary call of Christians, the body of Christ, is to help bring about spiritual transformation in people's lives one life at a time. The primary call or task of the government is to provide order to society. That's a good thing, but those are just those are two different things. Now that leads to another question, and the other question that I have is, well, in our concern for political influence, have we as the body of Christ allowed ourselves to be co-opted by political power? That may have been a concern of Jesus. He doesn't make it a point to cast a vision for new and improved fallen secular kingdoms. And I think, unfortunately, this is something that has happened to the church at least beginning in the 4th century. You might remember in the 4th century there was this Roman emperor. His name was Constantine. He won this battle and he believed that Jesus had given him the victory. I think he wrongly believed that. But as a consequence of this victory, Constantine granted the church wealth and political power and influence. The church, instead of following in the footsteps of Jesus, seeing this as a temptation of the enemy, had leaders like Eusebius and uh, Augustine who looked at the granting of secular political power to the church as a blessing from God. And it's about this time that the church slowly but surely began to forget that what we are called to do and empowered to do as advancers of the kingdom of God involves you know, love and the self-sacrifice and the enemy destroying or the enemy embracing and barrier destroying character of Jesus. That all got kind of traded in. 
for the uh, harsh barrier building, enemy destroying, self serving character that is typified by secular world powers. Now, you say, well, aren't you for building walls? I, I actually am one of these people that think it was great to put in a border wall. You may disagree with me, though, that's fine. But I'm just talking, church and state, for the longest time, really until the time of Constantine, were, were considered to not be married at the hip. And when they're married at the hip, you kind of have to choose. Am I going to take the way of power, where we assert our particular supposed moral and intellectually superior conditions and press them on people, or are we going to take the way of the cross and the way of service? Maybe Jesus saw that those things don't mix. And for those of you who are dyed in the wool Baptists, Baptists actually have a history of the separation of church and state for a reason. When the country began, there were Baptists that were instrumental in giving us the Bill of Rights and the separation of church and state. And you know why they believe that? Because they, they read it in the Bible and in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, this leads us to an, another question, and you're going to say, what, why, why is that a question? And the question is, should we believe the law will solve the world's most basic problems? So, Ernest, what does that have to do with politics? It has everything to do with politics. What do you think politicians do? What, what did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day do? They argued the law. 24-7, they talk about the law and the specifics of the law and the enforcements of the law. They're all about the law. What do politicians, our representatives, do? They talk about the law. They pass new laws. They get rid of old laws. They talk about the enforcement of the laws and the implementation of the laws. Now, when you, when you recognize that, it, that politics is largely about the law, let me just ask you, as people of grace... As people of Jesus, as people who've been born again, as people who believe that Jesus is the answer, not the law, do you really think we ought to get entangled in all that and terribly passionate about this? Let me ask you a question. Over the last 6,000 years, how many laws have changed the fundamental human condition? How many human sins have been actually adequately addressed and dealt with through the greatest of legislation. I'm all for good laws, but let's recognize the limitation of, of politics. If it comes to like transforming the society and changing the world, uh, political process has a pretty non-successful track record, doesn't it? And, that, and you say, well, that's not fair. That's not what politics is about. Exactly. Politics is about the law. So let me just ask you, do you think the law is going to save the world? Even God said that his divine law was not capable of changing the human heart. Do we think more laws is what the world needs more than anything else? That bigger laws, better laws, more laws, stronger law enforcement? One of the good things about the last couple of weeks is nobody's been talking about defunding the police, okay? I'm all for good laws and strong ethical law enforcement. But do we really think that the law is what the world needs more than anything else? Paul put it like this in Galatians. If righteousness came by the law, Christ died in vain. The law and lawgivers don't set people free. We know this. Let's not forget it. But what if, okay, let me just suggest something. What if there was something that actually could transform every convict's life? What if there was something 
that could actually heal every broken marriage in America? What if there was something that could actually reconcile people who were once enemies? What if there was something that could change every citizen of America into a person who is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? What if there was something that would help every addict to look beyond the hopelessness of their daily addiction? What if there was something that could absolutely radically transform our society where they were compassionate and caring and going out of their way to be a blessing to other people? If there was such a thing, if there was such a formula, if something like that existed, don't you think it would be a waste of time to spend so much energy and so much of our resources on political solutions that over the last 6,000 years have demonstrated they can't really bring about change. I was talking to somebody after the first service and just kind of rapping a little bit about change. And you know how it works. Laws generally change after the culture changes. We, you know, we got Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow. Why did laws change? Because people's attitudes and dispositions changed first. Why was there an end to slavery within the British Empire, largely through the influence of Wilberforce? Here's what happened. Laws changed because the attitudes and dispositions and beliefs and convictions of people changed before the law. Laws change in reflection of change that happens in culture. Laws don't change culture. Why do we put so much emphasis upon looking to the law to bring salvation to the world? Do you see the limitations or the problems here? Getting wrapped up in political process? There's another question that arises from this. Okay, Ernest, I think you're making a good point there, but but, but look, I I care about the country, and uh, don't you think that it would be good if we could just inject Jesus into politics? Is it wrong to think that mixing Jesus into the political system heals the political system without compromising Jesus? I mean, you put Jesus in anything, it makes everything better, right? Well, I, I I appreciate your heart. But that's incorrect. That's wrong-headed. Let me put it to you like this. I, I was surprised nobody else has ever heard this. I think it's an old saying. But you can answer the question. What do you get when you mix Jesus and politics? Anybody here know the answer? Politics. Jesus disappears. How frequently have you heard a conversation where Jesus is mixed with politics, where at the end of the conversation or the end of the Facebook post or whatever the case is, Where at the end of mixing Jesus and politics, Jesus steps front and center and is the grand attention. And we all fall in love with him because he is highlighted. And politics just recedes into the background. How does that happen? I I might say, like, never. When you mix Jesus and politics, you know what happens typically. The politics rises to the front. It stands front and center. And Jesus typically takes... A back seat. Moves to the back of the stage. It's like in the little children's plays, you know, where you have the kids that don't have a line. Dress them up as a tree or a sheep. Stick them at the back of the stage. We've got to put them up there somewhere. Well, if you mix Jesus and politics and Jesus ends up being the tree or the farm animal, I'm just kind of thinking, maybe we shouldn't put both on the same stage at the same time. That's probably not a good idea. Now, again, I know people go, well, hey, 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 wait a second. That's not being fair to Jesus. Listen, Jesus did not insert Jesus into politics. People wanted to insert Jesus into politics. People who did not get him. 
Satan wanted to put Jesus in a secular political position. Jesus wouldn't allow that. Jesus didn't insert Jesus into secular politics. It is obvious that it was not on his do list to help people have a better version of a fallen kingdom in this world. Now, again, well, what if we just had Christians in every office? Okay. Like I said, I'm all in favor of that. I think it's great to have people who've been born again in public office. That's fantastic. But let's be real here for a second. Just imagine that every office of politics in the whole country was all of a sudden occupied by Christians. We go, yay, that's great. Does that mean immediately righteousness is going to dominate in the land? Now we've got Christians in every office, so magically, fundamentally, the world is transformed. People stop in their tracks, and they stop being bad, and they start being good and righteous. Really? If Christians could somehow assume office in the land, again, I'm all in favor of that. That'd be fantastic. But if Christians somehow were going to get to power, they seize power, and they keep power, we're going to have, a bunch of crap. We have to pass a bunch of Christian laws. And once we've passed enough Christian laws, then everybody who's not a Christian is going to have to start acting like a Christian, even if they've not been born again because of fear of reprisal, imprisonment, paying fines, and all the rest. Does that sound like utopia to you? Does that really sound workable? Let's kind of press on this a little bit more. Suppose we have Christians in every office in the land. All of Congress, all the House, and all of the Senate are Christians. Does that mean all of a sudden, instantly, there's going to be agreement and incredible unity on all the issues? That makes me laugh. You know why? Because I've been to decades of church business meetings. (laughs) I know. If you get enough Christians together, they're not going to agree on everything. That doesn't happen. I was telling Al, you know, I said in the first service, you know, that just with me and Al, just the two of us. We disagree on where the piano should go. It should not go over there. Jesus wants it over there. Okay? I mean, like, really? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean, oh, you know, all of a sudden, magically, we all agree about everything. Just just imagine a Congress that's filled with Baptists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and, you know, Pentecostals and Charismatics and Roman Catholics. And now we just start talking about green energy, the death penalty, and, you know, public school curriculum. And all of a sudden, magically, we're all going to agree about that? What? Does that sound like a fundamental improvement there? That that's just... Really? Come on. America actually tried this experiment one time. It was called the Moral Majority. There was a group that said, let's just unite all Christians and politics under the same banner. It's called the Moral Majority. It was a flop. It started in 1969. It died out by the end of the 80s. And you don't have to take my word for it. You just There were men who helped lead this movement. Ed Dobson... Cal Thomas, when I was a kid, I remember listening to them speak and like, wow, that's really great. After the movement was over, they wrote a book together. It was Blinded by the Might. I want to read some of this to you. Ed Dobson says this, did the moral majority really make a difference? During the height of the moral majority, we were taking in millions of dollars. We published a magazine, organized state chapters, lobbied Congress, aired a radio program and more. Did it work? Is the moral condition of America better because of our efforts? Even a casual observer of the current moral climate suggests that despite all the time, money, and energy, despite the political power, we failed. Things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. Cal Thomas agrees. He said it was a waste of time. He makes an interesting comment. They did learn something. He said what has changed is that we no longer believe that our individual or collective cultural problems can be altered exclusively or even mainly through the political process. Duh. Later on, Ed Dobson writes something I think is worth repeating. He says, if people who claim to follow Jesus and his kingdom get too cozy with the government, it won't be the government that gets injured. It will be the church that is compromised. 
Upon reflection, I think the leaders of the religious right have made several critical mistakes. First, they have expectations of the government that God never intended. And here he's referencing Romans chapter 13. They expect government to reflect their religious values, but it was never intended by God to do so. It was instituted to restrain evil and promote good so that the values of God could be reflected in the lives of the people who claim to follow God. Second, they abandoned the greater priority of communicating the gospel for the lesser priority of sanctifying the state. The net result is that they have accomplished neither very well. Now, this leads to another question that I think is rather natural. Is that, well, if you can't mix Jesus with politics and maybe the church gets compromised in the process or Jesus gets convoluted in the process, well, can't I still be involved? It can, is, it, is it okay for a Christian to be involved in politics? And my answer would be yes, involved, entangled, no. Jesus on no level ever gave any instruction to the disciples along the lines of entangling themselves with the state. In fact, you may not know this, but for the first three centuries, and you say you may disagree with this, and I kind of do, but for the first three centuries of the church, Christians didn't participate in government at all. In fact, there was a, 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 for centuries, they would have to renounce certain government allegiances. There was that strong of a, of a sense that I can't serve both God and this empire or this region or this country at the same time. That changed with Emperor Constantine. Is it okay to be involved? Yeah, of course you're going to be involved. You're going to pay taxes. The Caesars of the world are going to demand taxes. You pay your dues so you can get on about the business that God would have you to do. You're going to be involved. Paul says this over in Romans chapter 13. You pay your taxes. You're a good citizen. You live in accordance with the, the, the rules of the land. If the rules include vote, well, then you vote, and you vote your conscience. Fantastic. But entangled? There are lots of passages that say you better watch out for those entanglements. It's going to compromise you. It'll compromise the gospel. It'll compromise your calling. Second Timothy puts it like this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. We're not supposed to get tangled up because we have a commander, and the ultimate commander, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And what is it that we're, we're pledging allegiance to do as a follower of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us we are ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Know your commander, know where your ultimate allegiance lies, know the task that he has given you, and you stay on task and you stay on point. Don't get entangled. Now, there's another question, and I don't even know how to answer the question because I don't know the percentages, and it, it's, not, it's not for me to judge, but there is a question that people have asked from time to time, and that is, you know, is the average Christian or the average self-described Christian more American than Christian? And uh, the, the reason I would at least raise the question is because the Bible tells us that as believers, we are part of a kingdom that transcends any party divisions or even national boundary divisions. First Peter explains to us that we are a, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are a kingdom of priests. We're told over in Hebrews... Uh, chapter 11, verses uh, 13 through 16, that we're aliens in this world. We're foreigners. We're from another place. We're not from around here. We're strangers. And we're waiting for a country from above because this is not our home. We're on mission like David and Nicole in Kenya or Tanzania or Malawi. 
Romans chapter 11, verse 15 says, one day there's coming the kingdom of God. Up there is going to come down here in all of its fullness. And when that happens, all the kingdoms of this world will pass. It will be obliterated, replaced by the country from above upon which we are waiting, where our true citizenship lies. And I just wonder how often is it that we get so wrapped up in the law and trusting the law and, and politics and inserting Jesus where he disinserted himself. I just kind of think every once in a while we forget these higher allegiances. I know that's what happens. Philip Yancey tells a story about a friend of his who served in World War II. And uh, this friend of his tells about an experience during World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. This friend of his had this assignment, the, the unit, their job was to go out the morning after an, an evening where German soldiers were left in the field and this unit would go out and kill those Roman, uh, not Roman soldiers, those German soldiers who had been wounded. So one day the unit is out there doing its job, looking for the wounded soldiers that have been left overnight out on the field of battle. They come across a German who is sit, sitting under a tree. And uh, the German's not wounded. He's just so exhausted, he literally can't move. This friend of Philip Yancey's then shoulders his rifle, ready to execute the German soldier, and the German speaks up in perfect English. Please, give me a moment to pray. Well, Philip Yancey's friend lowers the rifle and asks the man, are, are you a Christian? And when the man responds, yes, I am, Philip Yancey's friend says, me too. The man puts down his rifle. Philip Yancey's friend sits down under the tree with this German brother in Christ, and, and he pulls a Bible out of his jacket. Philip's, Philip's friend, I guess maybe had a Bible, a little New Testament Bible or something in his jacket pocket, pulls out his Bible, and they are reading the Bible together. And this German soldier and this American soldier, they're praying together. They pray for one another. They pray for their families back home. It's got to be a beautiful, magical moment. But when the American soldier, Philip Yancey's friend, says amen, he stands up and he says to his German brother in Christ and this fellow member of the eternal kingdom of God that transcends all time and space, he says to him, I'm sure that one day we will meet again in heaven. And then he shot him in the head. Now, I don't know all the complications that go with war and I don't mean to be harsh, but I'm pretty sure that's heartbreaking to Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that it's heartbreaking when believers under the headship of Jesus within the same body, members of the same eternal kingdom, the same country, the same ultimate citizenship with the same high calling as ambassadors under our king. I'm pretty sure that Jesus gets pretty disappointed when believers are so entangled with politics that they would divide from other believers. Or that they would make it a point so that other people would feel like they would need to divide. Because of political allegiances somehow being perceived to be more important than allegiance to Christ. Now this brings up another question that I have. And then we'll end on this. And the, the last question is, if I cannot get more political than I already am, and some of us maybe we need to be less political, if I can't get more political, well what can I do? I love this country, what can I do? I want to do something. Here's a suggestion. Do what Jesus did. So what do you mean? Look at what Jesus did with regards to the Pharisees. They bring up a political question. He answers it 
kind of obtusely, gets past it. Why are we bickering over this little idolatrous piece of metal? And then he moves on to kingdom concern. Here's what you can do. Reframe the question. Turn people's attention to Jesus. Help people to, in some manner or another, give all of who they are to the God who's given all of who he is to all of us. That's what changes the world. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus taught. If, that's the, if the gospel is the ultimate solution, why would we spend hardly any time at all on a political solution since every political solution in the history of mankind has proven to be largely ineffective? So here's what I want to leave you with. As we think about the country, and some of us, I, I was kind of kidding with the first service, I hope you guys are looking forward to the inauguration on Wednesday and, you know, the first certain, you know, okay, yeah, okay, I, I know. Uh, and, and some of you, you know, maybe you're not very happy uh, about that. Maybe some of you are. Great. But no matter who the president is, here's the thing. The average Christian has more power to transform the culture and save our nation than the president of the United States. So why would you say that? Because the gospel is still the most powerful weapon. In fact, the gospel is the only weapon that we know is 100% effective to destroy evil, to rid the world of violence and hatred and bigotry and division and fear and every other sin that ails humankind. Do you believe that? then don't get off track with regards to simply pointing people to Jesus. Don't expect me in the next year to get off track in pointing people to Jesus. Because I am convinced that this year and the next year and the year after that or however long it is, whatever happens next, the solution to the problems that ail this country it's not laws or better laws or different laws. There's some laws I like more than others. But what the world needs and what America needs is Jesus. Be careful about the politics because our political entanglements can compromise the gospel and they can get in Jesus' way. And as the body of Christ, we don't want that to happen, do we? Let's bow forward to prayer. Lord, help us to remain faithful to Jesus, um, pointing people to Jesus and walking in step with the way that Jesus walked and walking in step with the way that Jesus instructed the disciples. And as Americans, as people who live in this country, we, of course, are going to have opinions, and we do care about this country, and many of us you know, feel at liberty to, to express those opinions and should. It's a, you know, we live in a country of free speech. But I just ask, God, that you would give every one of us in this room the wisdom uh, of Jesus as we are baited to not always and maybe never take the bait. May we be singularly focused upon pleasing our Lord and Savior, our commander, as we carry out our primary task. 
I don't know what this means in every situation, not for everybody else and not even for me. But I just pray, Lord, that I would be pleasing to you, that my passions for the kingdom would surpass my passions for politics. I don't really know what else to ask, Lord, but I, I do. I just pray you would keep us on track and keep us focused as we, as we anticipate that the political churn will likely not calm down anytime soon. May we not enter the churn, may we rise above it as people of Christ, ambassadors of Christ with a message of reconciliation to bring. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.